Welcome to PassPack Podcast, your audio passport from physician assistant student to certified and beyond with your host, Rebecca Harrell, MPA, PAC. Today, our bonus bonus destination is an in-depth review of cardiac valvular murmurs, so you never have to memorize them again. So sit back, relax, and let's get to it. Hey everyone, it's Becca. I'm calling this a bonus bonus episode because I really chose to do this on the fly. Unlike my other bonus episodes, I really already have those planned out, but my original intention for this was actually to write a blog post, and I realized the only way to truly explain them has a lot to do with intonation and reviewing what certain things truly mean instead of just having me write it and you simply just like reading a book. Because after I finished what was going to be a blog, it was essentially going to be a book. And so why not just record it? Um, Don't worry, I will still post what I was going to do as the transcript to this episode. So don't worry, you'll have everything we cover today at your fingertips on my website at www.passpackpodcast.com. And you'll also be able to download the transcript so you can put it in your notes if you need to. We'll do today a little bit differently. Instead of a question and answer like I do for my main episodes, this is really going to be just a review, um, just to kind of teach you how I think things through instead of a question and answer base. So that's how today's going to be a little bit different. One of the most frustrating concepts to learn in PA school is all of the nuances between the various cardiac murmurs. I felt like no matter how many times I studied them and got them down, By the time the next exam came around, I forgot all over again and had to start from scratch. One day, I got super fed up with trying to memorize them for literally the millionth time that I decided to just try and actually take the time to connect the dots and understand the actual pathophysiological aspects towards each one of those minute nuances. So if you're looking to do the same and never have to memorize them again, you are coming to the right place. Instead of looking at the whole picture at once with the diagnoses, Let's just break it down to the basics and really build it back up. First, I really want to re-familiarize you all with the vocab and think about what it's actually doing to the blood flow and why, because then it will get so much easier to think through those really complex, convoluted murmur questions. So first, a murmur is sound just caused by turbulent blood flow. So remember the difference between that and a thrill, which is feeling the murmur almost, or feeling the turbulence of the blood flow, whereas a murmur is the sound that you hear. So you also have stenosis versus regurgitation. Stenosis is difficulty opening. So I really want you to think about putting your thumb partially over a hose and turning it on. And that turbulent blood flow pushes forward and is like a pressure hose. So when you're thinking stenosis, especially when you're talking about radiation, I really want you to picture stenosis as putting your thumb over that hose. As far as regurgitation goes, that's difficulty with closing, right? So think about turning off the hose and all of that water inside the tube still falls backwards into the tubing instead of going forward out the spout. In this case, the turbulent blood flow kind of falls backwards. Again, when you're thinking about radiation and and what happens with regurgitation, I want you to think about it going backwards instead of forward whereas stenosis would go forward. So then we have to really cover systolic versus diastolic murmur. So this can be really, really frustrating 
if you're not truly understanding what is happening during stenosis versus regurgitation. That's why it's so important to think about them as difficulty opening versus difficulty closing, and then think about what is supposed to be open when and what is supposed to be closed when. One of the ways to also quickly remember this is the mnemonic, you must pass to get paid. So pulmonic aortic stenosis, systole, pulmonic aortic insufficiency, diastole. So again, that's how you memorize it. But let's think this through so you don't have to remember the mnemonic, right? In systole, what is supposed to be closed? Well, the mitral and the tricuspid valves close at S1, and that's the start of systole. And you open the aortic and pulmonic valves. So in systole, normally, there's going to be a closure of the mitral and tricuspid valves, and there's an opening of the aortic and pulmonic valves. Now, when we apply what we just learned about stenosis versus regurgitation, this can really make sense because difficulties closing, which is regurgitation of the mitral and tricuspid valves, will lead to a murmur in systole because that's when they're supposed to close. Difficulties opening, like stenosis, of the aortic and pulmonic valves will also lead to a murmur during systole because that's when they're supposed to open easily. So if there's problems with closing during systole, that's going to be closing of your mitral and tricuspid. And if there's problems opening, again, that's going to be problems with your aortic and pulmonic. Now, if we think about diastole, it's the opposite, right? So diastole is the closure of the aortic and pulmonic valves that gives you S2. Opening of the mitral and tricuspid valves also happens at that point. So therefore, we can apply the same sort of principle. Difficulties closing, aka regurgitation, of the aortic and pulmonic valves will result in a murmur during diastole because that's when they're supposed to close. Difficulties opening, stenosis, of the mitral and tricuspid valves will also lead to a murmur during diastole because that's when they're supposed to open. So that's a really quick and easy way to remember your diastolic versus systolic murmurs is just think about what is supposed to be closed when and what is supposed to be open when. That's really all there is to that. As far as locations and radiation, this can get confusing too, but if you know, and this is something you will have to memorize, your locations of where you listen to your valves, you can kind of think it through based on if the jet is moving forward in stenosis or moving backwards in regurgitation. So for the aortic valve, right, you listen at the second intercostal space, at the upper right sternal border. That's really high yield. So in the stem, they're not gonna tell you they're, you're listening to the aortic valve. They'll tell you that you're listening either at the right upper sternal border or you're listening at the second right intercostal space. And so you need to know that that is going to be something with the aorta or the aortic valve. Stenosis of the aortic valve, because it's this turbulent blood flow that's like a pressure hose, it forces its way through the aorta, and if you picture where it would go, it goes up to the carotids. And that's why when you have an aortic stenosis, you get the radiation to the carotids. So it's moving forward. Regurgitation, well, that's moving backwards, right? Like we said, so your regurgitant blood flow will fall backwards, and that leads to the radiation in aortic regurgitation to the apex. For the pulmonic valve, we listen for that at the second upper left sternal border. So it's almost directly opposite. I guess it is directly opposite than the aortic valve when compared to the sternum. So really pay attention if they're saying upper left or upper right, because that changes what valve you're listening to. So the pulmonic valve kind of points in the opposite direction of the aortic valve. If you think about it, it's almost like an X. So your pulmonic will actually go to the left 
shoulder or the left clavicle. Also remember your right ventricle is going to be the most anterior portion of your heart to the chest wall. And so in pulmonic stenosis, this turbulent jet flow actually will shake the chest wall. And so you often feel that palpable thrill for the pulmonic stenosis as well. Pulmonic regurgitation is really not radiating. Um, and that kind of makes sense because it's a low pressure system. And so it's going to have less radiation when you're doing a regurge. And this can instead lead to things like hepatic congestion and maybe even signs of congestive heart failure. And so you'll look for something like that in the stem. Tricuspid, again, is also on the right side of the heart. So this is a lower pressure system. You listen to this in the fifth intercostal space at the lower left sternal border. Tricuspid regurge and stenosis is a little lower yield than mitral and atrial, but we'll still go through it. Tricuspid stenosis is similar to mitral, so it'll give you that rumbling sound, but instead it's around the xiphoid. So again, you really need to know your locations. And again, the regurge is really non-radiating because it's on the right side of the heart, right? So it can lead to a pulmonic ejection click if it's secondary to the backup from the pulmonary hypertension, which is usually the cause of something like tricuspid or pulmonic regurgitation. It's that hypertension in the lungs that is actually causing a backup, whether that's from things like core pulmonal, which is, you know, the right heart failure from COPD or from left heart failure, which is the most common cause of right heart failure. So then we have to think about our mitral valve. Our mitral valve is on the left side of the heart now with the aortic valve. So this is going to be auscultated at the fifth intercostal space at the midclavicular line. Again, the mitral valve is very high yield to know both stenosis and regurgitation. So mitral stenosis, you listen to that at the apex, and that's going to rumble against the left ventricle as it pushes through the valve. So remember, you have that turbulent jet power hose through that valve, and it's going right up against that left ventricle. And so you'll actually get that rumble right at the apex. In terms of regurgitation, you know, regurgitation is problems closing. When is it supposed to close? In systole. And so you are going to hear that holosystolic sound going over the left ventricle, and it's going to go backwards towards the axilla. So that's why in mitral regurgitation, you listen at the apex and it will radiate backwards to the axilla because it is regurgitant. It is going backwards. As far as the dynamic maneuvers go, these can get really confusing in terms of squatting, valsalva, hand grip. What is it doing? Why? And, and this is where, at least for me, it was always very difficult to think through until I actually took the time to think about what was happening. Let's just go over some key terms here. So Preload. Preload is the stretching of the ventricle sarcomeres prior to contraction. And the easiest way to think about what stretches the heart itself is more blood, right? More blood you have, the more your heart stretches. So higher volume of blood is going to lead to more stretch. It's going to lead to increased contractility, right? Because you're pulling more of that heart back so it can snap forward harder. And then that increases your stroke volume. To an extent, right? So you, we're not even going to talk about Frank Starling here, but just know to an extent, preload, more blood, more stretch, increased contractility, and sh increased stroke volume. What allows more blood to get into your ventricles, right? What, what allows for a higher preload? A lot of things, but we're going to focus on high yield. So slower heart rate, right? You have more time to fill when your heart rate is slower. So slow heart rate leads to an increased preload because there's more time to fill. Increased ventricle compliance. This allows for greater expansion of the ventricle and again allows for more blood to get in there and actually fill. Increased central venous pressure can also increase preload by either decreased venous compliance, the venous system is now kind of constricting and pushing that blood into the heart, or there's an increase in actual total thoracic blood volume and you do this by 
doing maneuvers that increase venous return. And this can be done forcibly or with gravity even. So we'll get into that later more. What is the simplest way to think about what decreases the stretch? Well, that's less blood, right? So if preload increases with more blood, preload is going to pretty much decrease with less blood. The same principle applies, but opposite. There'll be less stroke volume. What sort of things keep blood from getting to your heart? Again, this is kind of the opposite of what increases the preload. So think about faster heart rate. There's less time to fill, and so your preload is lower. It doesn't stretch as much because there's less time to actually fill it up and stretch it. This also applies to the quivering or impaired atrial contraction in atrial arrhythmias. There's just not enough time to fill. It's too fast. Or there's not enough squeeze going from the atria into the ventricle to even fill it up. So that's going to decrease your preload. Decreased ventricle compliance is less expansion. This is also going to decrease your preload just because it can't get bigger. What do we see this in? is hypertrophy a lot of the times, right? So if you have decreased ventricle compliance, you're not stretching out, you cannot grow your preload, you cannot contain a lot of preload, and that happens a lot in hypertrophy. Again, we'll get into that a little bit more later, um, but I just want you to kind of visualize these things. Decreased central venous pressure is also going to lower your preload. Less total blood volume, like hemorrhage. Less ventricular filling, like mitral and tricuspid stenosis, right? You can't get through. Decreased venous return, and that can happen from a number of different things. And again, we'll go into venous return later. So let's think about the maneuvers that will increase our preload. So really, this is what are we doing that is literally going to help get more blood into your heart? And that is leg raises and squatting. So when blood shifts from your lower extremities, either from gravity with leg raises or from force with squatting, you actually increase your preload back up into your heart. Decreased preload is essentially doing things that increase the distance or make it more difficult for blood to actually get into your heart. And this can be done in Valsalva and standing. So Valsalva maneuver or bearing down does a couple things, but the most high yield thing to remember for murmurs is how it acts to decrease preload. So an increase in intrathoracic pressure when you bear down in a Valsalva decreases venous return to the heart. Standing is essentially doing the same thing, but with gravity. So the easiest way to think about this is when you stand up, your blood falls. That's, that's the easiest way to think about it for me is when you stand up, your blood just kind of falls down to the ground away from your heart. I know it's a lot more convoluted than that, but for purposes of murmurs and for most exams, that's really all you need to think about as in terms of standing. So afterload, what is afterload? That's the amount of force that's needed to push the blood out of the heart during a contraction. So the best way to think about afterload is something actually sitting or pressing on the aortic valve or like holding that aortic valve door shut, <laughs> like my, my Hodor example. I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones, but that's my example for that is you're holding that aortic valve shut as hard as you can. The heart is going to have to use a lot more force to push that door open if the afterload is high, which essentially tells your left ventricle to start lifting weights, which is result in hypertrophy because of that, but I digress. So things that increase your afterload are really things that are going to make it harder for the blood to push through that door into your system. So out of your heart into your system, somebody's holding that door shut, increases your afterload. The best example of increased afterload maneuvers is hand grip. So when you initiate a hand grip, you're making the muscles in your upper extremities squeeze your vessels, leading to a narrower, higher pressure pathway. This increased force you're creating essentially acts like the force pressing against your aortic valve and making the ventricle work a lot harder to push that blood through and get it into your body. 
when something is sitting on your aortic valve, the murmur going through the aortic valve and what is going forward, that's stenosis, that'll actually decrease because no turbulent blood flow is getting through and so there's no sound to make. By contrast, it tends to increase the sound of mitral regurgitation because the force of that aortic blood flow pushing backwards into the heart is now pushing through the mitral regurgitation, right? Because that's a backwards. So it's going to actually decrease those forward murmurs because you're holding the door shut. But as you're pushing that door shut, you're also pushing blood into the heart backwards. And that's why it makes the regurgitation louder. You can decrease afterload by taking the load off of the aortic valve, allowing the blood to flow through it much easier. The example of this is using something like amyl nitrate, that decreases peripheral vascular resistance and leads to an easier time getting blood out of the heart into the body and also allows for easier flow from getting the blood from the body to the heart. And that will actually increase your venous return as well. So I've talked a little bit about venous return. So let's just think about it for a second with inspiration and expiration. So the quick mnemonic here, if you're in a pinch, is RYLE, right inspiration, left expiration. So right-sided murmurs increase with inspiration, left-sided murmurs increase with expiration. So with inspiration, in simple terms, when you pull your air into the lungs, you do so by decreasing your intrathoracic pressure, and that allows your lungs to expand. As a result, the decreased intrathoracic pressure allows the venous blood flow to pass through more readily into your heart. Another way I like to picture this, while it's not likely scientifically sound, but it helps for visualizing what's going on, is to picture the lungs expanding and pressing on your vena cava to shoot the blood into the right side of the heart. And that's how I think about it when I think about inspiration increasing the sound of the right-sided murmurs. Because the pulmonary blood volume will increase during inspiration, there'll be a decreased flow to the left atrium during inspiration because that blood is now filling the lungs. That'll later increase with expiration. But that's why you have a louder murmur during inspiration because there's more blood flow going back into the right side and it actually decreases left side of murmurs because there's less blood flow going into the left side. And the opposite is true when we talk about expiration, which we'll get to. So again, what does this mean for a murmur? Right side of murmurs will typically be louder during inspiration due to the increased volume of turbulent blood flow passing through those faulty valves on the right side. By contrast, left-sided murmurs will typically be quieter during inspiration due to the decrease in volume returning to the left atrium at that time. Expiration leads to two things. Air is pushed out of your lung by now an increase in intrathoracic pressure versus decreased in inspiration. The increased pressure acts like a roadblock for the vena cava, decreasing blood flow into the right side of your heart. Constriction of your pulmonary vessels as the lungs deflate now forces that blood into the left side of the heart. So it's almost like squeezing the blood into the left side of the heart. And then what does this mean for a murmur? Well, it means the opposite of what inspiration means. Left-sided murmurs will typically be louder during expiration due to the increased volume of turbulent blood flow passing through the left-sided faulty valves, and the increase in intrathoracic pressure leads to an increase in afterload on the aortic valve. Alternatively, right-sided murmurs will be quieter. Then you have to think about the weirdos. And though this is really about stenosis and regurgitation, I would be remiss not to discuss the weirdo murmurs that trip us up when we're thinking about what typically leads to an increase and decrease in murmur intensity, and that's mitral valve prolapse and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. While most murmurs decrease in intensity during valsalva, aka 
decreased preload, and increased with intensity when squatting, aka increasing preload, mitral valve prolapse, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are opposite. It really makes sense when we think about why. Okay, so hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. This is due to hypertrophy of the heart muscle, but specifically, the murmur is caused by that thickened asymmetric septum, and if the septum isn't pushed flat enough from an a high preload, the turbulence going over that asymmetry is greater because you're not flattening out this roadblock. So when you have decreased preload, your murmur is louder because the roadblock is bigger. It's not pushed flat. Alternatively, when you increase preload, like with squatting, the murmur is going to be quieter because the amount of blood is now pushing that hypertrophy flat, increasing preload, and decreasing the turbulent flow across the asymmetric septum. A similar concept applies when we think about mitral valve prolapse. Mitral valve prolapse is, I think about it like your valve turns into this really big umbrella. And so when you have your left ventricle squeezing, it's pushing the mitral valve backwards, almost like wind if it's going under a gazebo canopy or something like that, like it pushes it up backwards, but there's no regurgitation quite yet. So it's still able to keep its shape or, well, not keep its shape, but it's still able to hold the blood in. But you'll hear that snap, right, that mid-systolic ejection click as that wind of the blood from the left ventricle forces and presses up against that canopy or that umbrella-like mitral valve. That will give you that mid-systolic ejection click. When you decrease the preload with mitral valve prolapse, you're actually going to increase and shorten the intensity of the mid-systolic click. And the way I think about it is that more blood flow kind of buffers the sound, and so it will actually delay the sound of the snap because it takes longer for systole to kind of snap into that mitral valve. And then with a decreased preload, it's less time to kind of snap into that mitral valve because you don't have as much blood. That's how I remember that one. It's It's a little harder, but if you just remember that it's similar to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in terms of what happens with the murmur, it's easier to connect the two together because to me, it's really, really clear of how to visualize hypertrophic cardiomyopathy acting opposite in terms of dynamic maneuvers. Okay, so based on all of that information, let's really put it together and think it through diagnosis by diagnosis. We'll start with the left-sided murmurs. What did we say about left-sided murmurs in terms of inspiration versus expiration? So left-sided murmurs will decrease with inspiration and increase with expiration. So you have your aortic valve that's supposed to be opened in systole and closed in diastole. So aortic stenosis leads to a problem opening, which is going to lead to a systolic murmur. We talked about how that acts like a finger over the hose, leading to this pressure hose effect. So that quality of the harsh systolic ejection murmur now will lead to an increased force passing up into the carotids which is where you get your radiation. Putting more blood into the heart by increasing preload with leg raise or squat will now increase the volume of blood pushing past a stenotic valve, increasing that murmur's intensity. Alternatively, less blood into the heart with valsalva or standing leads to a decreased preload and will lead to a decrease in murmur from less turbulent blood flow going through the stenotic aortic valve. Sitting on this valve, like hand grip, leading to increased afterload will lead to, again, less turbulent blood flow pushing through the stenotic valve, and that will decrease the murmur's intensity. Alternatively, when you stop pressing against the aortic valve's door, aka using amyl nitrate to decrease afterload, 
the blood flow increases, which will then increase the murmur's intensity. When we think about aortic regurgitation, this is a problem with closing. Well, when does the aortic valve close? In diastole. So this is a diastolic murmur. Blood will flow backwards, which radiates towards the apex in aortic regurgitation. As usual, with venous return and preload, except with our weirdos, increased preload increases the turbulent flow through the regurgitant valve, leading to an increase in that murmur, and decreased preload leads to a decreased blood flow through the regurgitant valve, which decreases the murmur. When force is applied against the door that already has a problem closing, more blood will flow backwards now, increasing the regurgitant murmur. More force applied happens with things like hand grip, increasing the afterload. When we decrease the afterload, like using amyl nitrate, that will decrease that murmur's intensity because now the regurgitant blood has an easier time moving forward, less of it's going to move backwards, so it will be less intense in sound. Now let's talk about the mitral valve. Mitral valve, when is it closed and when is it opened? So mitral valve is closed in systole and it opens in diastole. With stenosis, we talked about stenosis being a problem opening, mitral valve stenosis will lead to a diastolic murmur because that's when it's supposed to open. Mitral valve regurgitation is a problem closing, and that will be a systolic murmur because that's when mitral valve should be closed. So back to mitral valve stenosis, this is a turbulent jet through that stenotic valve, and because it's turbulent through the valve, it rumbles against the apex, increased preload will increase the sound, and decreased preload leads to a decreased sound. For mitral valve stenosis, afterload is pretty negligible here. However, for mitral valve regurgitation, the blood is flowing backwards through a high-pressure left ventricle into a lower-pressure left atrium. That'll lead to this holosystolic murmur that radiates backwards towards the axilla. Similar to aortic regurgitation, decreased afterload decreases the blood flow backwards and therefore decreases the intensity of the murmur. Whereas when you increase the afterload, you're pushing that blood backwards harder and increasing the intensity of a mitral valve regurgitation. In mitral valve regurgitation, decreased preload leads to decreased blood flow backwards, and then your sound decreases. Increased preload increases blood through a faulty valve, leading to a louder murmur. So now let's talk about our right-sided valves. What happens to their sound during inspiration versus expiration? So these murmurs increase with inspiration and decrease with expiration. Remember our rial mnemonic, or remember inspiration kind of pushes the lungs out and then I think about it shooting that blood into the right side of the heart. So in pulmonic stenosis, this is a problem opening. When is the pulmonic valve supposed to be open? In systole. In pulmonic stenosis, this will be a systolic murmur. So this stenosis leads to this turbulent jet going towards the left clavicle or shoulder, and that's going to be harsh and loud. Maneuvers affecting right-sided murmurs are primarily associated with things that affect systemic venous return, aka the vena cava, such as inspiration and expiration. If you're trying to differentiate between a right-sided versus left-sided murmur, you look towards what happens during inspiration. Is the murmur louder or is the murmur softer? If it's louder, it's going to be on the right side. Pulmonic regurgitation, well, this is a problem closing, right? Regurgitation is a problem with the door closing. The pulmonic valve is supposed to be closed in diastole, and so you will get a diastolic murmur for pulmonic regurgitation. Because this is usually caused by increased pulmonary pressure from pulmonary hypertension, the blood flows backwards, high-pitched from the increased afterload, forcing it backward, 
and is similar sounding to aortic regurgitation, which is why you need to know to differentiate them, you have the patient inhale and see if it gets louder. If it gets louder, it's pulmonic. Then we have the tricuspid valve. So this is open in diastole and closed in systole. So tricuspid stenosis, again, a problem opening. Tricuspid should be open during diastole. This is a diastolic murmur. Turbulent flow through the stenotic valve, as with mitral stenosis, leads to this diastolic rumbling that will increase with inspiration. Typically, they're going to present with an opening snap, again, similar to mitral stenosis because of that crusty valve snapping open all of a sudden. How do you differentiate it if they kind of sound the same? Well, you have the patient inhale. So for right-sided murmurs, they're really usually going to talk about inhalation and expiration and what happens to the murmur. Tricuspid regurgitation is a problem closing systolic murmur, right? Because the tricuspid should be closed during systole. As with pulmonic regurgitation, you'll hear a high-pitched blowing murmur from the force of the blood backwards from the higher pressure pulmonary hypertension into the lower pressure right atrium, which also increases with inspiration. Because this will be during systole, you'll hear this holosystolic murmur at the left lower sternal border radiating towards the xiphoid. As with pulmonic disorders, you're going to want to look for signs of right-sided heart failure as the blood flows backwards, congesting into the body, leading to things like JVD, peripheral edema, hepatic congestion, and other signs of right-sided heart failure in your stem. So never forget to look at your stem when you're trying to differentiate between these murmurs because sometimes that will really help you. Remember, left-sided heart failure will lead to lung congestion, right-sided heart failure will lead to body congestion. And so use those little clues to kind of help you separate them as well. So that is really how I think about murmurs and how I have been able to stop memorizing them simply by just thinking through the pathophysiology and being able to separate out what's happening when I'm presented with it on a stem. This can be a little confusing. Listen to this episode as many times as you need. Again, I'm going to post the transcript on my website at www.passpackpodcast.com to kind of give you some notes to read along as I'm talking about it. But if you have any questions, please reach out, please comment. Go to my Instagram at passpack underscore passport. I usually check my messages pretty frequently there. And you can also sign up for email updates on the website. So I hope to see you guys there and I hope this helped you. Please like, subscribe, comment, do all the things to help get this uh, information out there. So I appreciate y'all and I will see you next time. Thank you for joining me today on PassPack. I hope you enjoyed the show and learned something along the way. Until next time, safe travels. As a responsible disclaimer, PassPack is not intended to be used as medical or legal advice, and though I try to always keep it educational and evidence-based, any and all opinions or viewpoints shared on PassPack do not represent those of my employer or the profession at large.